Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to the Third Coast Podcast. I'm Katie Mingle. You'll hear our weekly radio show, ReSound, here, as well as the occasional story curated recently from our audio library at thirdcoastfestival.org. The Third Coast Festival is a nonprofit organization whose livelihood depends in part on support from listeners like you. To find out how you can help or to check out all of the cool stuff we do apart from our radio show, visit our website, thirdcoastfestival.org. Thanks, and enjoy the podcast. From the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago, I'm Gwen Maxi, and this is ReSound. ReSound is a remix of music, documentaries, found sound, sound bites, and little audio riots we find all over the world. On the air, the internet, we listen to everything we can get our ears on and bring you the best of what we hear each week on ReSound. You're not living for your own. You're not living for your own desires, your own needs. You're living to have something positive to live in this world. So when you die, you know you've done something. You know, I'm not just a person who just ate and drank and had kids and money and then died. Our world is in a constant state of flux. In fact, the only thing that doesn't change is the fact that everything changes. And whether it's a mob of millions or one single voice, nothing evolves unless someone, somewhere, stands up and says, no more. Protests of the people, by the people, can bring down dictators and smash cultural barriers. The revolution is going on. We will never stop. Today on ReSound, the mobilizations, the movements, and the music of protest, from the macro to the micro. Stay tuned. In this country, we have a rich history of protest that's both magnificent and messy. Here, even the most bitter political foes agree on one thing, the right to disagree. But in many places, speaking out can have dire consequences. Until January of 2011, Egypt was one of those places. Although most Egyptians were unhappy with their president, Hosni Mubarak, and his police state, most didn't dare speak up. Then, almost 30 years after Mubarak took office, a few sparks, a lot of tweets, and the brave organization of thousands rewrote the history books. Heba Marayev, an Egyptian native and human rights worker, was there in Tahrir, recording the revolution on her iPhone. 
The following piece includes tape from Tahrir, as well as interviews done after the revolution. So January 25th was my first protest. I never cared about anything, you know, that had to do with human rights or politics or social justice in Egypt just because I felt there was no hope. But January 25th completely changed my life, that now every day I wake up and I think, how's Egypt? The invitation to the 25th of January event had a slogan, Bread, Bread freedom, freedom, Human Dignity. dignity. Bread, freedom, and human dignity. I'm going to fight for my freedom and justice, even if I will pay my life. And uh, we just hit the streets and talked to people and prepared for the 25th. And uh, we were also uh, preparing for this with Kolina Khalid page on Facebook. It has uh, more than a million people as members now. We thought that we were all going to be, you know, just taken to prison on the spot. And we started as 100 people. And all of a Bayan. sudden, we became 20,000. Hmm? Only, prison? Only prison and torture and everything, <laughs> everything, hanging, everything. And uh, all of a sudden it became big. Everyone was there. Old people, young people, couples, families, young kids, toddlers, babies. Everyone was there. All elements of the Egyptian society. You could see Copts, uh, Muslims, communists and rich people, poor people, people coming from countryside. And I saw a conservative religious man with a beard talking casually about politics with, you know, a very modern-looking girl and feeling that they were both part of the same cause. In Tahrir Square at night, I saw young mothers with their suckling babies under the tents, living under the rain and the cold, staying all the night and day there. 1 a.m. of the 26th of January, and the police became very, very tough on us. Alaa El Aswani is an award-winning Egyptian novelist. And we ran, and there was the gas bombs, and I did not think that it's going to be a real revolution. So there were young people around me, and I told them that, fine, then we did a very good job. Today there were uh, more than one million in the square, so you go home, and tomorrow morning, we're going to make another manifestation. And I was surprised. They were really refusing. No, we never go home. And I was very touched. I felt for the first moment, there is something I don't understand. This is a very different spirit. On the bridge, the famous bridge, which is the Qasr al-Nil one, you felt, okay, this is the road to Tahrir, this is the road to liberation. And it was the day we actually managed to settle in Tahrir and create this Tahrir utopia or, uh, you know, the republic, as we call it. Sally Moore is a Coptic Christian. Muhammad Abbas used to be with the Muslim Brotherhood. It's very nice. This moment, we said it's uh, a revolution. It's a revolution, yeah. And this time, we, we make it. And it's a Facebook revolution, so that's even funnier, I guess. Everybody was making fun of you, you know, who, who plans for a revolution on Facebook and who plans for a revolution on a specific day. There is no date for a revolution. And we said <laughs> it was the 25th of January. We had a date, so it was the police anniversary, and we gave them a nice one. January 25th was declared a public holiday by the Mubarak government. It's a day to celebrate police day. There would always be a big speech by Hosni Mubarak and 
police day for those of us on the activist side sort of symbolized everything that was wrong with Mubarak's police state. The most powerful chant that we heard from the very first day of the protest was Al-Shaab Yurid Isqat al-Nizam which means the people want the downfall of the regime. That resonated so strongly because it was a chant that we'd first heard in Tunisia and it was about a change of the entire structure. It wasn't just about Mubarak, it wasn't just about his ministers, it was about the whole regime. The second big protest was January 28th, and the night before, the government shut down the internet and also shut down mobile phone communication. On the 27th, after they said to us they will let the cell phones down, um, I thought that we will die tomorrow. So I went to uh, my home and see my baby and uh, saying to him, bye, <laughs> we have the right to leave. The more violent they got, the more angry we as protesters became. So when they actually cut it, I knew beforehand because we kept hearing rumors every now and then that they're going to do that. So we knew that the phones would be cut off. And when it actually happened, I'm like, okay, you're giving me even more reason to be out there. Yeah. You remember there was this banner from Anonymous back then uh, supporting us, and it was, uh, if your government shut down the internet, shut down your government. <laughs> and it was really how, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, how we were. I, the first thing I thought was just, like, how scary are we? Or, like, how yeah. weak are you? That's it. But ironically... You switch off the internet and mobile phones, people go to the streets, it seemed. Because how else can you look for um, people? How else can you find them except go and physically be with them in the same place? And so it completely backfired. On that day, we needed so much communication, not to go down to protest, but to save lives. And guess what? There were millions of people in the street all over Egypt. And uh, the police retreated that day, so... It was victory for that day. I mean, it was more than 100,000 on the 25th, even much more. And then by the 28th, we were sure that after the prayers, uh, whether it's from the churches or the mosques, we were going to get big gatherings. And I think that was the time I felt, okay, that's going to be a battlefield. And it was actually a battlefield. The, the riot police was not that prepared on the 25th to face this bigger number. So it was easy to break all the barriers. But on the 28th, it was a true war zone. 
they were shooting what we thought uh, initially were rubber bullets and we were seeing people just fall uh, on the ground and then suddenly we realized that there were snipers, that there were people on the rooftops of buildings um, around Tahrir Square that were just shooting people point blank. You would see you know, a green laser light and then a second later that person would get hit in the face or in the chest and that's how many people uh, were killed and that was not targeting particular leaders because there weren't any. It was was just a scare tactic. It was meant to send a message that even if you're standing by watching what was happening, we could get you. No one is safe on Tahrir Square. I saw uh, one of the youth uh, die in front of me because of the gunshots from the police. Being a doctor, I tried to save him, but it was too late. I felt kind of responsible of what happened to him. But uh, meanwhile, I think that this was the right thing to do. So that was a very difficult moment for me. When we were on the bridge um, clashing with security agencies, that was, of course, the scariest moment. We saw so much blood and so much violence, but we also saw how those security officials did not really care. They knew that what they were doing was not in the interest of the country. It was the people versus the regime. And the regime was, you know, guns and clubs and tear gas. And the people were simply unarmed except for their extraordinary courage and caring for one another. When I got shot, I was in uh, actually in the middle of Tahrir Square. All of a sudden I found uh, my eyes just really hurts. Uh, I knew there's something uh, seriously wrong. Uh, <laughs> um, I could have lost my eye in an accident or, a, or in something, you know, minor, but I felt, I, I mean, I lost my eye for a real cause, for the freedom of the people. And I've seen the other injuries. I, I mean, my injury is nothing compared to others. So I, I, I swear to God, I haven't felt sorry once. What we're doing is much bigger than my eye or my body or myself. You're not living for your own. You're not living for your own desires, your own needs. You're living to have something positive to live in this world. So when you die, you know you've done something. You know, I'm not just a person who just ate and drank and had kids and money and then died. I haven't food. I haven't anything. Me and my children, I will die today. Will not be silenced whether you're a Christian, whether you're a Muslim, whether you're an atheist. You will demand your goddamn rights, and we will have our rights, one way or the other. We will never be silenced. We here belong to all, all Egyptians. We want to be free. Izay means how, and this was a song written by Muhammad Munir, who's one of the most famous pop stars in Egypt today. So when he wrote this song, Izay, about the revolution, about how it is impossible to accept things as they were under Mubarak, that song became one of the anthems that you would hear all around Tahrir. I realized how big this is 
on the 29th of January. Hossein Bahgat is executive director of the Egyptian Initiative for Personal Rights. So on the 28th, we fought security uh, forces. There was uh, so much violence, so much blood. A day later, the square was completely packed with people. And I looked around me and I saw, you know, Egyptians of different ages, different religious affiliations, different social classes and political views. And uh, even if this is only a first step in a fight that's going to last for months or years, I knew then that we were going to win this fight Um, by the sheer power of our numbers and of our togetherness. There were a lot of Christians praying for liberation, and actually we have a liberation mosque and the liberation church. Sally Moore is a Coptic Christian. She and Muhammad Abbas, formerly of the Muslim Brotherhood, helped organize the youth movement in the square. He said, as youth Muslim brotherhood, they want to change the image of the brotherhood as well. Uh, They don't want to be the scary crow anymore because they have been for a long time. So they want to be more open to the world, uh, more of negotiators. I I want to add something about the Christian church. Christians um, here in Egypt always had the trouble that the head of the church will tell us you're not allowed to protest. If you want to ask for something, you go and ask through the head of the church. So if you have a problem with a government uh, agency or anything, you have to go through the church. And I think the biggest achievement of this revolution for the Christians in Egypt is the fact that they now feel I do not have to follow your orders in politics because church is something and politics is another. If I want to pray in church, I'll pray in church, but I'll go and ask for my demands out in Egypt, on the street, with the Muslims and with the rest of the Egyptians. So that's a massive change. So I'm in Tahrir Square and as far as the eye can see, the square is full of people, men, women, veiled, not veiled, beards, no beards, um, lots of Muslim Brotherhood, women wearing the niqab, people who brought their kids, people who brought their loudspeakers with them. I've been out on the streets of Cairo all day since Tuesday in massive crowds. Vast majority men, though lots of women, and uh, I haven't been sexually harassed once, which is always an indicator that there are greater things at stake because that's usually something that happens to you in any big crowd, especially downtown. When you're in Tahrir Square, you feel a lot more secure, partly because the atmosphere here is so festive and also because of the things that people are chanting, the energy behind the Mubarak, Ya Mubarak, Ghur, Mubarak out, Zihna, Ya Mubarak, Al Hilal was Salib, Ma'an. For once, people power did make a difference. And regardless of what comes out of this, that is a narrative which can't be taken away from us. I'm never going to be as dismissive about social media again because I've seen how communication made it happen. I think Khalid Saeed uh, and uh, what happened with Khalid Saeed was one of the main incidents that led up to the revolution. I think many would agree. Khalid Saeed was a young Alexandrian who was beaten to death on a crowded street by two policemen in June 2010. 
the brutality of, of this beating sparked outrage across Egypt and protests against torture took place for the following months. Google marketing executive Wael Ghanem put up a Facebook page called We Are All Khalid Said, which used to coordinate and plan a lot of these protests. It just went beyond imagination. Everyone on the internet started talking about it. People were started printing stuff, going to the streets, promoting it. And it was just, you know, if, if the internet have done one thing, it actually helping break the psychological barrier of fear. That's what the internet did, bringing everyone collaborating together, thinking that I'm not alone, I can be part of this big group, and I'll be protected. Hossein Bahgat of the Egyptian Initiative for Personal Rights. So by 2010, when Khaled Saeed was murdered in Alexandria, and I'm from Alexandria, but I never thought in my life that there could be an, you know, an online forum to discuss torture with hundreds of thousands of members disseminating information and discussing ideas of how to mobilize against it. And suddenly I see thousands of families, middle-class families, fathers uh, taking their kids and their wives to the street, dressed in black and standing silently to express their outrage at the practice of torture. And without this and without the internet, we would not have had the police day uh, demonstration plans that turned into a revolution against the regime. And, you know, the rest is history. It's interesting to see the evolution in the mood in the square. This is the seventh day running and you'd think that people start getting very tired, but no, they're out here and, and people really feel that they can completely express themselves for the first time on the street in Egypt. It's day eight and there's barely room to walk. At least twice as many people as have been in the square over the past few days. It's Friday, February 4th. It's Monday, February 7th. Today is the day of remembrance for all of those who died in the protest. Every night you'd have new musicians coming to the square and there were some bands who were known for being more critical of the government under Mubarak. Ramya Assam wrote a couple of songs, one based on all the different chants that you'd hear in Tahrir, where at one point he would sing Irhal, Irhal, and the crowd would chant with him. Irhal means go. Romy Assam became known as the singer of the square. And he's saying that the Irhal means leave. And that his songs motivated the people. And, and actually he, um, he mentioned that he got hit before he was tortured by the military. He got hit in the square. This was on the famous Wednesday. Uh, the Wednesday when there were camels and, and horses inside the square. He got hit on his mouth and on his head. And this was the only day he did Sing. 
you've just seen the news that Mubarak may be resigning, may be stepping down, or alternatively handing over power to the military. And so I'm heading down to Tahrir Square, walking down Kasraini Street, just past the parliament. Uh, women are ululating from the upper balconies. People seem to think that this is the moment that they've been waiting for. One of the tanks parked outside is blasting out music, and people are gathered around it. The atmosphere is amazing in the square, and there's this new electric energy that everyone was feeling as people walk around and ask each other, have you heard? Do you know what's happening? I'm, I'm in a corner of the square where they set up a stage, and a lot of Kairos and dependent bands have been playing here over the last couple of days. Right now, there's a, a folk group from the city of Port Said playing. The day before it, okay, actually what we call uh, the third day of paralysis, because uh, he came, uh, he, it was felt that this man is not going to go after all this. I was watching it on the screen in the square, actually, and in front of me there was um, a banner coming down from the building with all the pictures of the martyrs so far, and I was crying hysterically that night, and I felt, oh my God, I can't believe that I'm actually seeing all these dead, beautiful youth, you know, and he's still on TV telling me that he's Saying, uh, but something inside me felt no, this man is gonna go. When it comes to feeling that Mubarak is going to leave, I think maybe I can go to February 10th after his speech, the really long one that was really <laughs> intimidating to all of us. People decided to go to the presidential palace, and we were just like, we're staying here until he goes. And I think that's when I really believed that he will absolutely leave. Absolutely. And he did. Suddenly this massive roar went up over the square and people started jumping up and down saying, he's gone, he's gone. There's no mistaking the intense excitement, like Egypt winning the African Cup, but multiplied by millions across Egypt today, a Friday, the weekend. And the anger of this morning after prayers is sort of exploding into this massive outburst of joy. It was the last day to Mubarak in our Egypt. I am a proud of Egyptian. I love Egypt. I love Egypt! But in my, but in I love Egypt! I was in denial for like 45 minutes and then partying for like 16 hours. It was like the biggest sober party in like the world. <laughs> the day after Mubarak resigned, there was a big cleanup operation. Activists who'd been camping out in the square for the last 18 days wanted to take care of it. And everybody was calling, okay, now let's all go clean Tahrir Square as a symbol of the cleaning the, the whole country uh, of corruption. So my kids, they were so excited. We went with some of our neighbors and the boys got to clean. And it was really uh, nice because we had to park uh, a long way from Tahrir. And we walked to Tahrir Square and there were lots of people. We were calling out to each other and encouraging each other to clean. And some people would borrow a broom for us. We had got extra stuff with us. So, and I think the boys were very excited and they saw how people were really cooperating in doing this cleanup together. 
we just hope we are optimistic. We yes. hope that it it will continue. The the revolution will continue, and we are we are still worried that we're still worried yeah, at we, this we're moment worried, where yeah, where we're going. We can go backwards, actually. Yeah. So yeah. It, we're just hoping that Egypt keeps on the right track. We, we are proud to be Egyptians. After the revolution, we are more proud. Yes. And uh, I'm happy that I see my son Omar not wanting to be in another country or belonging to another country. We are Egyptians and they're listening to more Arabic music actually. That's a change yes. because before that they only li listened to uh, English uh, songs and uh, <laughs> now they are any more interested in listening to Arabic music. <laughs> Voices from Tahrir, The Sound of a Revolution, was produced by Barrett Golding and Jesse Graham and narrated by Heba Marayev for Human Rights Watch. Egypt has been under military rule since its revolution, and it's set to elect its first new president at the end of this month. The election is expected to result in a runoff between an Islamic candidate and a former foreign minister who served under Mubarak. Since the revolution, the military has maintained tight control over the political process and has unfortunately continued many of the abusive practices that existed under Mubarak. We caught up with Heba Marayev, who's still in Egypt, and asked her if she's optimistic that human rights will have a place in Egypt's politics going forward. I think um, I, think I had pretty wild expectations um, after the overthrow of Mubarak. Um, at the beginning of the uprising in January 2011, um, we didn't necessarily expect that these protests would end with the overthrow of Mubarak. But when that happened, everything seemed possible in those first few weeks. And human rights organizations and human rights defenders had a new standing because we had, in a sense, contributed to uh, the, the uprising. And so at the time, what I had hoped would happen is that there would be a break with the abusive practices of Mubarak's police state, a new recognition that torture was unacceptable, that arbitrary detention was unacceptable, that military trials were unacceptable, and, and, and a push for the kind of legal and institutional reform that would protect uh, an end to those policies, or would lead to an end to those policies. And unfortunately, even that hasn't occurred, uh, and, and primarily because we didn't actually have a transition in power. We just had a military takeover after Mubarak's overthrow. I think we're su at such an uncertain point uh, in, in Egypt's um, transition where we still don't know how things are going to settle politically over the next few months. It's very difficult for us to then you know, figure out whether we should be very depressed or only partially depressed about um, how, hard a, how hard a road lies ahead in terms of pushing for human rights protections. So the entire world was so riveted by what happened in Egypt. What can people do to support Egypt going forward? I think what I'd like to see is for people to pressure their own governments in their relations with Egypt to have a responsible foreign policy that uh, involves upholding human rights and uh, democratic transition rather than seeking um, stability at the expense of 
uh, human rights. Um, we've already seen that with, with Mubarak for decades. We would raise human rights violations and be told that Mubarak was ultimately a good partner because he ensured stability. And that was a very short-sighted policy. And my hope is that uh, we won't see that um, reoccurring in, in the months ahead. Heba Marayev of Human Rights Watch. Facebook and Twitter played such a big part in the fast spread of information about the protests in Tahrir Square that it's hard to imagine affecting change without these social media. But some of this country's most famous and successful protests arose spontaneously. Stonewall is one of those. I am Gene Harwood, and my age is 80. I'm um, Bruce Merrill. I don't know if it's really true, but now people do refer to us as the two oldest gay men in America. We do, I think, have maybe a, a record relationship of almost 60 years together. Being gay before Stonewall was, was a, a very difficult proposition because we felt that in order to survive, we had to try to look and act as rugged and, and manly as possible to get by in, in, the, in the society that was uh, really very much against us. I'm Jerry Fair, and I'm 80 years old. I started a gay lifestyle in 1948, when I was around 39 or 40. At that time, if there was even a suspicion that you were a lesbian, 
you were fired from your job and you were in such a position of disgrace that you slunk out without saying goodbye even to the people that liked you and you liked, never even bothered to clean your desk. You just disappeared. You just disappeared. You went quietly because you were afraid that the recriminations that would come if you even stood there and protested would be worse than just leaving. My name is Sylvia Rivera. My name before that was Ray Rivera until I started dressing in drag in 1961. The era before Stonewall was a hard era. There was always the gay bashings on the drag queens by heterosexual men, women, and the police. We learned to live with it because it was part of the lifestyle at that time, I guess. But none of us were very happy about it. My name is Seymour Pine. In 1968, I was assigned as Deputy Inspector in charge of public morals in the 1st Division in the Police Department, which covered the Greenwich Village area. It was the duty of public morals to enforce all laws concerning vice and gambling, including prostitution, narcotics, and laws and regulations concerning homosexuality. My name is Red Mahoney. I've been hanging out, drinking, partying, and working in the gay bars for the last 30 years. In the era before Stonewall, all, all of the bars, 90% of the bars, were mafia-controlled. There wasn't that many gay bars. You'd have maybe one, two uptown in the Upper East Side. They would get closed down, and there'd be one or two in the West Side. They'd get closed down, and Midtown, there'd be one, two, three, maybe open. As they would get closed down, they'd move around, and they were dumps. Very often, all we sent in would be two men, could handle 200 people. I mean, you tell them to leave, and they leave, and you say, show me your identification, and they all take out their identification and file out, and, and that's it. And you say, okay, you're not a man, you're a woman, or you're vice versa, and, and you wait over there. I mean, this is a, a, a kind of power that you have, and you never gave it a second thought. The drag queen took a lot of oppression, and we had to... We, we were at a point where... I guess nothing would have stopped us. I guess, as they say, or as Shakespeare says, we were ladies and waiting, just waiting for the thing to happen. And when it did happen, we were there. On Friday evening, June 27, 1969, at about 11.45, eight officers from New York City's Public Morals Squad loaded into four unmarked police cars and headed to the Stonewall Inn here at 7th Avenue and Christopher Street. The local precinct had just received a new commanding officer who kicked off his tenure by initiating a series of raids on gay bars. The Stonewall was an inviting target, operated by the Gambino crime family without a liquor license. The dance bar drew a crowd of drag queens, hustlers, and minors. A number of the bar's patrons had spent the early part of the day outside the Frank Campbell funeral home where Judy Garland's funeral was held. She had died the Sunday before. It was almost precisely at midnight that the Moral Squad pulled up to the Stonewall Inn 
led by Deputy Inspector Seymour Pine. For some reason, things were different this night. As we were bringing the prisoners out, they were resisting. People started gathering in front of the Sheridan Square Park right across the street from Stonewall. People were upset. No, we're not going to go. And people started screaming and hollering. One drag queen, as we put her in the car, opened the door on the other side and jumped out, at which time uh, we had to chase that person. He was caught, put back into the car. He made another attempt to get out the same door, the other door. And uh, at that point, we had to handcuff the, uh, uh, the person. From this point on, things really began to get crazy. My name is Robert Rivera, and my nickname is Bertie, and I've been cross-dressing all of my life. I remember the night of the riots. The police were escorting the queens out of the bar and into the paddy wagon, and there was this one particularly outrageously beautiful queen with stacks and stacks of Elizabeth-style, Elizabeth Taylor-style hair, and uh, she was asking them not to push her and they continued to push her, and she turned around and she mashed the cop with her high heel. She knocked him down, and then she proceeded to frisk him for her the keys to the handcuffs that were on her. She got them, and uh, she undid herself and passed them to another queen that was behind her. Well, that's when all hell broke loose at that point. And then we were, we had to get back into the Stonewall. My name is Howard Smith. On the night of the Stonewall riots, I was a reporter for the Village Voice, locked inside with the police, covering it for my column. It really did appear that that crowd, because we could look through little peepholes in the plywood windows, we could look out and we could see that the crowd, well, my guess was within five, ten minutes, it was probably several thousand people now, two to two thousand, easy, and they were yelling, kill the cops police brutality, let's get them, we're not going to take this anymore, let's we get them. We noticed a group of uh, persons uh, attempting to uproot uh, one of the uh, parking meters which they, in which they did succeed. And they then uh, used that parking meter to, uh, as a battering ram to break down the door. And they did, in fact, open the door they crashed it in, and at that point was when they began throwing uh, Molotov cocktails into the place. It was a situation that uh, we didn't know how we were going to be able to control. I remember someone throwing a Molotov cocktail. I don't know who the person was, but I mean, I saw that, and I just said to myself in Spanish, I said, oh my God, the revolution is finally here, and I just like started screaming, freedom, <laughs> we're free at last, you know, and it, it felt really good. There were a couple of cops stationed on either side of the door with their pistols, like in a combat stance, aimed in the door area. A couple others were stationed in other places, behind like a pole, another one behind the bar. All of them with their guns ready. I don't think up to that point I ever, had ever seen cops that scared. Remember, these were pros, but everybody was frightened. There's no question about that. I know I was frightened. And I'd been in, in combat situations, and uh, there was never any time that I felt more scared than I felt that night. And 
I mean, there was just, you know, there was no place to run. Once the tactical police force showed up, I think that really incited us a little bit more. My name is Martin Boyce, and in 1969, I was a drag queen known as Miss Martin. I remember on that night, when we saw the riot police, all of us drag queens, we linked arms, like the Rockettes, and sang the song we used to sing. We are the village girls, we wear our hair in curls, we wear our dungarees above our nelly knees. And the police went crazy hearing that, and they just immediately rushed us. We gave one kick and fled. My name is Rudy, and uh, the night of the storm, while I was 18, and to tell you the truth, that night I was doing more running than fighting. I remember looking back from 10th Street, and there on Waverly Street, there was a police, I believe, on his uh, cop, and his on his stomach in his tactical uniform and his helmet and everything else, with a drag queen straddling him. She was beating the hell out of him with her shoe. Whether it was a high heel or not, I don't know. But she was beating the hell out of him. It was hysterical. Yeah. My name is Mama Jean. Uh, I'm a lesbian. I remember on that night, I was in a gay bar, a woman's bar, called Cookies. We were coming out of the gay bar, going toward 8th Street. And that's when we saw everything happen. Blasting away, people getting beat up. Police coming from every direction. Uh, hitting women as well as men with their nightsticks. Uh, gay men running down the street with blood all over their face. We decided right then and there, whether we scared or not, we didn't think about it, we just jumped in. Here, this queen is going completely bananas, you know, jumping and hitting the windshield. And next thing you know, the taxi cab was being turned over, or the cars were being turned over, things. Windows were shattering all over the place, wires were burning around the place. It was, a be it was beautiful, it really was, it was really beautiful. I remember one cop coming at me hitting me with the nightstick in the back of my legs. I broke loose and I went after him. I grabbed his nightstick, my girlfriend went behind him. She was a strong seven again. I wanted him to feel the same pain I felt. And I kept on saying to him, how do you like the pain? Do you like it, do you like it? And I kept on hitting him and hitting him. I was angry, I wanted to kill him. At that particular minute, I wanted to kill him. I wanted to do every destructive thing that I could think of at that time to hurt anyone that had hurt us through the years. It's like just when you see a man protecting his own life. They weren't the queens that people call them. They were men fighting for their lives. And I'd fight alongside them any day, no matter how old I was. A lot of heads were bashed that night. A lot of people were hurt. But it didn't hurt their true feelings. They all came back from war and war. Nothing that's when you could tell that nothing could stop us at that time or at any time in the future. Remembering Stonewall was produced by David Isay with Michael Shirker for Sound Portraits Productions.
While the history books marked June 27th as the night of the Stonewall riots, it didn't end there. In the following days and nights, thousands of people continued to gather outside the bar. For the first time, same-sex couples held hands and kissed on the street. A movement began. And it's come a long way. Case in point, the President of the United States recently came out publicly in support of gay marriage. Hey, we're in the middle of a revolution Because I see the face of things to come Yes, I do Well, my friend, it's gonna have to bend. Now, not all protests are so successful, and not all protests get national attention. There are smaller protests going on in communities all the time. In 2011, when the Chicago School Board planned on closing a number of neighborhood schools, they got an earful. The questions in this particular case were, who, if anyone was listening, and did it matter? Proposed school closings in Chicago were not up for a vote yesterday, and it wasn't what CEO Jean-Claude Brizard was planning to talk about. Morning, Mr. President, members of the Board of Education, members of the public. Um, in the audience, parent Adorthus McDowell had stood up. CPS security guards quickly surrounded him, but others in the packed room, a lot of others, echoed his shouts. Children have died! Literally and spiritually! Because of your policies! You have produced... McDowell says dozens of school closings have left neighborhoods in disarray. Board members and district officials stared out at McDowell and the chanting audience. Board President David Vitale waited for them to finish. CEO Bazard, sorry for the interruption. I hope they all feel better now that they've gotten it out of their system and we can get on with the business of the. Uh, so, good morning. But things were not going back to normal. Security guards escorted protesters out of the board chambers, but as quickly as the leader could be removed, someone else took up the chant. Then this. Madam Secretary, I'd entertain a motion for us to go into closed session. Five eyes, no nays. And board members and district officials hustled out a back door and into closed session while the chants continued. Parents, teachers, and activists who'd shown up at 5 a.m. to stand in line for a turn to address the board looked at each other. What now? Some had slept overnight at CPS. Jesse Sharkey, vice president of the Chicago Teachers Union, a former high school teacher with some obvious practice at classroom management, took the reins. Okay, uh, we're, we're just going to proceed with people's testimony. If the board comes back, obviously, they'll figure out how they want to make the meeting proceed at this point. Um, who, who's my first speaker? Right here. Go ahead. Hi, good morning, everyone. Good morning. good morning. For nearly two completely surreal hours, Chicagoans mad at 10 years of school closures stepped up to the podium and spoke to empty chairs. CPS's audio video guy turned the cameras back on, and testimony was piped over the TVs again in the board chambers. It was zany. Protesters pleading with invisible school officials for their voices to be heard. Math teacher Jason Cooper looked diligently up from his paper at the absent board members as he read his testimony. He and every other teacher at Crean High School will be given a pink slip at the end of this year. Will you support us, not by closing us, 
but by investing in us and investing in our students in their current schools. Thank you. Eventually, the board returned. Just a fraction of the public was left, including James Murphy, whose testimony sounded a lot like the rest of the meeting. We're not taking over a board meeting. We're not taking over a board meeting. We're going to reopen our school. We're going to reopen our school. Murphy, a Ph.D. student in philosophy, is part of Occupy Chicago. That group is joining forces with those who feel there are two school systems in Chicago, one for the haves, one for the have-nots. Murphy says the next step will be to actually take over schools. Board President Vitali said no one's made any final decisions about this year's proposed school closings, and the board wants to hear from the public. Uh, we regret what happened today and the way that it happened. We regret that not everybody who may want to, want to have been heard could be heard. Uh, I hope those people who did disrupt the meeting recognize that they prevented me- people from being heard rather than helping them being heard. Pro-charter school advocates in particular were frustrated. They said for every activist protesting school closings, there are thousands of kids who need better schools. Near the end of the meeting, board members voted unanimously to authorize 12 new charter schools, some of which will likely be housed in closed school buildings. The board votes on the school closings and turnarounds in February. Board Protest was produced by Linda Lutton for WBEZ News. Lucretia Britz helped gather audio for the story. As a result of their protest, no changes were made. The school board voted to go forward with all proposed school closings and turnarounds. You will not be able to stay home, brother. You will not be able to plug in, turn on, and cop out. You will not be able to lose yourself on Skag and skip out for beer during commercials because the revolution will not be televised. The revolution will not be televised. The revolution will not be brought to you by Xerox in four parts without commercial interruptions. The revolution will not show you pictures of Nixon blowing a bugle and leading a charge by John Mitchell, General Abrams, and Mendel Rivers to eat hog maws confiscated from a Harlem sanctuary. The revolution will not be televised. As we heard in Tahrir Square at the beginning of the program, protest on a macro scale can produce a revolution. But the personal protest of one individual, heard by just a few, can cause waves too. This is the story of just such a protest. Hi, I'm Tao, Tao Win, and I am uh, a songwriter and a musician. My relationship with my grandmother when I was growing up was one of one-sided nurturing. She was always around, but we never really talked. I didn't know how to engage with her. She immigrated from Vietnam when I was about five years old and moved in with us, the tiniest woman on earth. My grandmother, along with my mother, they've always been very supportive of my music. They would always encourage me. You know, she's the reason I wear makeup and a dress on stage. And my grandmother would say ridiculous things like, you look poor up there. No one wants to watch a poor person on stage. (laughs) You know, and at that time I said, well, I am kind of poor, so. But um, eyeliner's cheap. Just a couple of years ago, I heard some rumors that my grandmother hadn't spoken to my grandfather in the years before he died. 
no one in my family knew how long the silence had lasted, or even really what all the details were. Everyone had assumed that my grandmother had forgiven my grandfather on his deathbed. In true form, no one in my family, no one talks about anything besides what we're going to eat next. There's a high premium placed on saving face and keeping up appearances, so I figured I would find out for myself. I sit down with my grandmother and I ask, can you tell me about life with my grandfather? He was very generous with other people. He would roast a pig and share it with the whole neighborhood. We didn't have enough plates or bowls for everyone to eat, but they came over anyway. Everyone knew him, everyone respected him, and everyone heard him when he swore at me. They would say, here it comes again, so obscene, so dirty. The whole time she's talking to me in this interview, she's not making any eye contact. You know, she just stares straight ahead, and she's so matter-of-fact. Was he always mean to you from the beginning? He was mean to me for years. He referred to me as a whore. The whore doesn't know how to be grateful, whore this, whore that. I ignored him. I never said one word in return. Socially and culturally, there were bounds. And, you know, given the time period, she couldn't divorce him. She didn't really have that power. I've been told before, the husband rules all. The home is his domain, and he can do whatever he will. Did he have mistresses? He had everything. He had it all, all kinds. You took care of everything, the cooking and the cleaning? Everything. Then I stopped talking to him, and he would just swear at me. Say what you want to say to me. I will never say anything back. And I didn't say anything to him for 20 years. So because he had nothing kind to say to her and she had nothing to say to him, my grandmother didn't speak to him for the last 20 years of his life. And, you know, this was the one way she could fight back. And then he got sick. In the end, he went into the hospital to die. By then, he couldn't speak very well. His tongue went loose. He could only ooh, ah. And my grandfather was a Catholic. And um, one of my aunts, who is Catholic, brought the priest in as soon as they realized that he didn't have much longer. The priest was brought in to perform the last rites. It was to ask for, for his forgiveness so that he could proceed on to heaven. So the priest talked to me. He asked me, why are you so upset with him? What has happened that you wouldn't speak to him for 20 years? Please tell me so I can continue with the ceremony. If you don't tell me, then I can't ask the Virgin Mary for forgiveness. But I didn't tell him. I didn't say anything. The priest kept saying, if you don't tell me, then he can't be released. I said to him, that's all, Father. That is enough. If you ripped my mouth open, I still wouldn't talk. Let him bear his sin. Let him go under with that sin. He took that sin against me with him. To watch her state very plainly that she intended for her husband to go to hell was incredibly powerful. 
I, it was weird to glimpse another side of this gentle, quiet, perpetually smiling woman. I'm so proud of her for this fierceness. She used silence to assert herself as opposed to just reinforcing her submission. Um, she used it as a statement. What is that? It's a phone with a recorder. I've been recording you for a radio show. People will laugh. I don't want people to laugh at our family. No one will laugh. There's no shame. There's no shame in this story. Tao's Grandma Makes a Statement was produced by Stephanie Fu for Snap Judgment. Check out more stories from musicians on Stephanie's podcast, Stage Dive. Find a link to her website on ours, thirdcoastfestival.org. Resound is a production of the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago. I'm Gwen Maxi. The program is produced by Katie Mingle and curated by Johanna Zorn and Julie Shapiro of the Third Coast Festival. You can hear today's program at thirdcoastfestival.org, where you can also hear hundreds of outstanding documentaries from around the world and subscribe to our podcast. Support for Resound comes from Dojo, a full-service digital agency, on the web at doejo.com. Dojo, we fuel ideas that grow. Support for Resound also comes from Third Coast Percussion, who will perform a concert in celebration of John Cage's centenary at Main Stage this Friday, May 25th. The concert also celebrates the release of Third Coast CD and DVD of Cage's music. Tickets for the concert are available at thirdcoastpercussion.com. The Third Coast Festival is a nonprofit arts organization made possible with lead funding from the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. Additional support is provided by the Boeing Company Charitable Trust, the Agadino Foundation, and the Menaki Foundation. This program is partially supported by a grant from the Illinois Arts Council, a state agency. Special thanks to our many individual contributors from Chicago and around the world. If you want to contact us, we would love to hear from you. Email us at resound at thirdcoastfestival.org or find us on Facebook and Twitter. Resound returns next week with more radio that you can't hear anywhere else unless you live everywhere else. You've been listening to the Third Coast Podcast. Stay connected with us through Facebook and Twitter or by signing up for our email list at thirdcoastfestival.org. If you like what you heard today, consider writing us a review on iTunes or sending us a few bucks. As always, thanks for listening. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bolin Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bolin Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bolinbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 